So what are we doing? Doing a podcast on water equity. We're doing a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm tired. Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water. One podcast. I'm Amy McIntosh, Managing Editor of Water Quality Products. I'm Lauren Baltus, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. And I'm Bob Crossan, Managing Editor of Water and Waste Digest. Okay. <laughs> and t- today's episode, we're going to talk about water equity. Um, I had been talking about wanting to do this episode for quite some time, um, and we've got some good news to work from today. Um, so I don't know where we want to start first on that. Yeah. Well, one thing we um, talked about doing amongst ourselves, uh, I think it was oh, good last point. week or two weeks ago. I don't know. Time. Time. But um, on October 10th. Oh, my God. October 10th was Imagine a Day Without Water. <laughs> Everybody's hold, hold up. Running I got to go get my room. notes. I don't know where my notes are, so I'll just talk to myself. <sighs> Everyone has hey, okay. Lauren's, back. Lauren's back. Lauren is back. <laughs> Waiting for Bob. Waiting for Bob. My post-it note got deleted by housekeeping. So, delete. Oh my god. Well, <laughs> deleted. I have, I have my notes. So basically, we had this fun idea, which was <laughs> that apparently failed miserably. We're doing great. Um, October tenth is Imagine a Day Without Water, which is sponsored by the Value of Water campaign, and essentially it's a day for organizations to kind of promote um, how important our water resources are and how difficult it would be to go without water for a day. So on October 9th, we all kind of took note of our average water use in a day. Um, with the goal of on October 10th using less water. I don't know if that... I don't know if that was... It was, however, a good exercise, I think, in seeing where our water use is in a day and some of the the things we don't realize, we kind of take for granted. Um, But... Well, I... I'll always say, okay, so personally, one of my New Year's resolutions was to reduce my water consumption. So... I've been trying harder to be aware of it, but um, there's this water calculator. Did you do it too, mm-hmm. Amy? Um, I'm trying to, okay, it's called Water Footprint Calculator. You can access it online. And we calculated our score based off of their algorithm. And um, what's most interesting from that is no matter how much you try to reduce your water consumption day to day, take shorter showers, um, things like that, it, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things because the most of your water consumption is coming from things you purchase, like clothing, mm-hmm. and the food you purchase and yeah. eat. That's where you're consuming most water. That's where your mm-hmm. biggest water fo- footprint is coming from. And mm-hmm. I even noticed that just from recording my water usage from those two mm-hmm. days. I would say even, like, just the, the nature of using... Um, electricity and the nature of using the internet Mm -hmm. is already using a lot of water because they need water for cooling tower blow down um, to cool all of their servers even so like 
basically a, any of your regular bills that you're paying every month mm -hmm. are also contributing in some way to the to water consumption. Yeah, it's all those behind the scenes things that most mm -hmm. most of the public isn't thinking about. Well, and just just to talk more about the value of water, like, um, do this exercise is like really cool for like realizing just how much water you use on a regular basis for like even just simple things like oh i need dishes to make my dinner tonight i have to wash dishes mm -hmm. all of a sudden right. i'm using water right. um and it just remind it reminded me of a couple of years ago when i had a pipe burst in my house and i was without water from my pipes for about two or three days mm -hmm. it was it was like a total life-changing experience because i was like how do I make any food? Right. Yeah. Like, how do I do anything? I can't wash my hands. I can't flush the toilet. Like, I can't, I can't drink water. Right. I had to go. I had to go to my boss's house to shower in the morning before work. Yeah. Like, it was just. It really. It reminded me of that. Like, looking through all the things that I was doing with water, because that when that when that pipe burst, it that really gave me a value mm -hmm. for for water at the time, and yeah. it was like good to kind of have this reminder this year of that experience going through this and like re reliving that almost so it, it was just your interesting world upside down. yeah it, it really does it was it was a very that was a that was a really interesting experience at the time and now like in hindsight and how it kind of connects with this it's really mm -hmm. yeah and the way that this our little experiment worked out for mm -hmm. me was that it, the day that we were recording our water use I was was the day before I left for a trip so I had dishes to wash I had laundry to do mm -hmm. and all this stuff and I was it I mean it they were chores and whatnot that I'd be doing anyway but it just seemed like so much water at one time and I got to the point where I was looking up how much water my apartment building's washing machine uses and <laughs> I was like really into this experiment mm -hmm. um, but then the next day traveling too was interesting to see you know, I filled up my water bottle a couple of times at the airport and, you know, staying in a hotel, um, those places, a lot of newer hotels especially have, you know, low flow plumbing and toilets and things like that. But also when you stay in a hotel, I usually opt out of having my sheets mm -hmm. changed or my towels, towels. changed mm -hmm. because that uses a lot of water to wash those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's great that they give you those, that option. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, and just to add more on like the layer of that, it, like with traveling, it's like you're at an airport. There's people who are mopping floors. Uh -huh. There's people cleaning bathrooms. Cleaning you know, just yeah, cleaning the plane. There, there's all sorts of water use that mm -hmm. is not is not even being used by you, but indirectly yeah. you can see around you. And yeah. that that I think that was another interesting facet of the experiment was kind of like see you you see water kind mm -hmm. of right so. Well, my water footprint, according to this calculator, was 1,263 gallons per day. Um, and the U.S. average is 2,220 gallons per day. So I'm not, bra I'm not bragging, but... <laughs> but she's kind of um, bragging. Yeah, I'm trying to beat it. So um, <laughs> I'll tweet about this oh. on the Stormwater Solutions Twitter and then send us your water footprint. Mine was 1,324 gallons wow. per day, so I don't know what Lauren's doing better than me, but <laughs> we're gonna have to fight about it, I think. Uh, okay, all right. <laughs> but well, all of this- You did oh, do laundry. I think that that, that, well, that accounts for a good portion there. I did too. Oh, did you? Holy <laughs> cow. Fine. fine. Um, but all this kind of ties into 
the water equity topic that um, mm -hmm. we wanted to talk about, the Imagine a Day Without Water kind of fell on, it was good timing because we, Bob, has, we have an interview we want to share with you, but mm -hmm. um, maybe talk about it a little bit first. Yeah, so the idea of water equity, and there's, there, there's a much better um, definition of this if you go to the U.S. Water Alliance website. Um, this was a big topic earlier this summer at the One Water Summit in Minneapolis, um, and it really, it really struck a chord with me there, and it, I think it's a really fascinating topic and a really important one. Mm -hmm. um, and essentially, it's just water equity is making sure water is affordable and clean and reliable for everyone, mm -hmm. not just those who can pay for it, not just for communities where, um, where, where it's easy to get water. I mean, we, we've been doing a lot of this day zero coverage of going to water scarce regions or finding water scarce topics to talk about. Like that's one area where water equity obviously is highly important because you have a limited amount of water. But then you have other areas like Milwaukee, which is one of the most um, water segregated communities in the country mm -hmm. that is being as proactive as they can about making intentional strategies to make water affordable for the disadvantaged communities as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's it's a cult, it's more than just like paying for water. It's a cultural type of thing. It, it impacts um, a lot of different divisive so social issues as well. And um, that's why I think it's really important to talk about because it is it, it enters a really divisive area of our culture. Well, and it's not just happening in the U.S. It's happening all over the world. Yes. You know? mm -hmm. I mean, it's something that we see in the developing world a lot. Um, mm -hmm. There's in, in certain parts of the developing world, there's not a lot of access to clean drinking water. Um, and... Sometimes when I've seen, for example, like U.S. people coming in to these countries and installing treatment systems, they're just leaving the system and they're not leaving it with the resources needed to keep it running for years on end. So it's mm -hmm. it, how is it really helping? So um, there's, I don't know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a topic that I feel strongly about and it's... Mm -hmm. Well, and it's not just about access. The The whole point of affordability is, like, a really important one. Having some type of strategy for um, communities that struggle to afford water or struggle to pay bills is really important. Um, one of the things that I heard about while I was, or this was actually, I think, at AWWA so I met with Esri, and they showed me how their um, software can be used to fight water inequity. Mm -hmm. um, so in this instance, there was a, um, it was a community where there was a highway that ran through the center of it. And on the right-hand side of that highway was um, like more affluent communities, places that could afford their water, and that was the, where the billing location was. On the other side of that highway was a disadvantaged community that was struggling to pay their bills. And Esri used their software with that community to determine kind of some demographic things regarding them. Like they don't have cars, so they can't get across the highway. Um, they don't, they, they're paying, they're working two jobs and they don't really have a lot of time to drive all the way across town to pay their water bills. Mm -hmm. 
So the strategy for that community was to make a second location in that disadvantaged community where people could pay their bills. Um, so I thought, I thought that was like a really interesting way of using technology that's available um, to find a way to better make things affordable. And then they also made a strategy of a water strategy where that was affordable through grant money and, and loan funding and stuff. So it would reduce those payments for those people as well. Oh yeah, and then um, we, th this ties into the interview as well. Um, with the Navajo Nation um, International Water Sa Sanitation and Hygiene Foundation uh, is doing the Community Plumbing Challenge and the focus is on the Navajo Water Project, which is an initiative from Dig Deep. And at the One Water Summit earlier this year, Emma Robbins, who runs the American Projects there, she's the American Projects Director, she and Dig Deep won a water prize for their efforts in Navajo communities. And um, I got to speak to her at the One Water Summit, so I'll throw in that interview now. Yeah, so I'm here at the One Water Summit, and last night they had the U.S. Water Prize winners, they were awarded last night. Um, one of them I am very lucky to be speaking with right now is Emma Robbins. I have that correct? Yeah, Emma Robbins. Yes. Um, she's from Dig Deep, um, and I wanted to tell a little bit of her story and kind of where things are with her. So, Emma, could you tell me a little bit more about Dig Deep? Yeah, so I am the American Projects Director. Um, we have been around for several years now, but have been working on the Navajo Nation, where our largest project is currently since about 2013. Um, we are doing a couple of things there. Uh, the Navajo Nation is actually in four states, so Four Corners area, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Utah. And we're working in all of those areas, not Colorado yet, but right now the biggest project that I'm talking about is in through New Mexico. And we are installing different home water systems. So these consist of very simple things like a cistern, plumbing, water heater, and a sink. And that just is sort of our mission in general, is to bring Americans hot and cold running water. Um, we do this by having a water delivery system. It's a truck. And this is important because the families that we serve are totally like off the water line um, for a number of reasons. Either that's where their traditional homeland is, or that's where you know, sheep are, or that's just where they're living because of either traditional reasons, or you know, it's it's expensive to live in a larger, more populated area where you might be able to get utilities. Um, we also are doing a couple of other little projects in terms of working on the Navajo Nation, like in school and replacing plumbing and whatnot. But yeah, like I said, our, our main mission is to get everybody hot and cold running water. We have been working exclusively in the United States for about a year and a half now. Prior to that, we were working in certain parts of Africa, Cameroon. And yeah, I think our biggest challenge is just also educating people because, you know, everyone here knows that there are almost two million Americans that don't have running water, but people outside of the summit don't know that. You know, I myself am from the Navajo Nation. I'm from the Arizona side. Tuba City, plug in Tuba City, um, and you know it's it's just something that that's what we accept on the reservation is you don't have running water, you don't have sanitation, you don't have electricity. That's just life, you know, and that's every day. And I think 
a lot of times when I talk to people about that, they are just totally blown away. And I always hear this, oh, that's just in Africa. That's the number one phrase that I hear. And I'm like, okay, well, first of all, what part of Africa? Because there are millions, not millions, but tens of countries. And second of all, no, that affects Americans. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that you are, are Navajo. I, you guys have a lot of work in that space. What? Mm-hmm. what how long have you been involved in that? And how much did that did your heritage play into wanting to serve those people? That's a really great question. Um, so I grew up on the Navajo Reservation. My dad is from Cameron, Arizona, which has one of the highest uranium contamination problems in the entire United States. Um, my grandmother died of stomach cancer from uranium in the water. You know, a lot of family members have been sick or have died as well, friends. And that's not just me, that's everybody, right? Mm-hmm. So growing up, that was something that I was confronted with a lot. And I did a lot of personal activism and education in that realm. But professionally, I was working in the commercial art world. Um, I was directing a gallery in Chicago. And it was something that I was doing on the side, but realized after a while that I needed to take a bigger role in that because I think a lot of times one of the things that happens on the reservation is a lot of people aren't able to speak up for themselves and um, I feel like I was able to help people in different ways in terms of telling their stories or going out and researching and being you know culturally aware of what's going on because obviously Native America is totally ignored and that's unfortunate and so I was reading about Dig Deep in the New York Times and I just reached out to them and um, you know I visited with them and things just sort of snowballed from there working with them. I've learned a lot about PVC parts um, <laughs> with these systems and you know water pressure and whatnot. But that played a really big role because for me personally I wanted to go back and help my people and to educate others because like I said a lot of times people don't have a voice to speak up for themselves. Mm-hmm. It's been really great because I get to travel home about once a month. The area that we work in is about four hours away from where I'm from. But it's still great because we're starting new projects in all parts of the reservation. If the reservation were a state, it'd be the 10th largest state. So it's been really great for me on a personal level because I get to stay connected with those people and with those issues and with my culture, but also helping those people outside of that and educating others about it. and. You know, taking part in things like Standing Rock and really great things that tie into what was only just a small part of my life before when I was working in the art world. And, um, you know, I'm also a maker and an artist myself, and that's been really helpful because learning a lot more about these issues, I've been able to educate a lot more through the work that I'm making. Okay. Yeah. So what are some of the biggest challenges and hurdles that you have to overcome in, really, in anything to deep? You know, I would say... One of the largest things is, I mean, so the Navajo Water Project is just sort of the tip of the iceberg. We're going to work in other non-tribal lands and uh, off reservations, for example. We've been doing research um, in the colonias, which is right on the border of Mexico and Texas, specifically in the Brownsville area, so the Rio Grande Valley area. And then also hoping to expand into Appalachia. So it's not just in Native America that we're working, or it's not just a Native American issue, mm-hmm. you know. But with that said, because we are currently working on uh, tribal lands, it's really 
hard to educate people or to get them to even try and understand. I mean, when you have things like the Redskins or the Cleveland Indians, people can't even fathom that that might be hurtful and it's really archaic and it's like the equivalent of having a team called like the N-word or something. Yeah. Like people don't realize that that's an issue, so how are they going to realize that there are larger issues like that? So, you know, I think the thing too is when you're talking to somebody on the telephone, or if you meet them in person, they might not know immediately that you're native, and they might mm-hmm. say some hurtful things or some really ignorant things. And it's not like they're trying to do it on purpose, but that's something that I struggle with personally a lot, is sort of overcoming that first battle. And I actually really like that challenge because I think too often we shame people into saying, well, you're dumb or you're ignorant and I don't even want to spend my time with you. Whereas if you take the extra 10 minutes and you say like, first of all, let's use the word indigenous or let's use the word yeah. Native American. Let's not use the word Indian or anything else and so having that initial conversation is definitely challenging but something that I really enjoy and like I said just bringing awareness to it because nine out of ten times people will be receptive to what you have to say whether it's a water issue or a cultural thing Um, you know I think it is sort of difficult a lot of times working with Dig Deep in terms of there being a lot of mistrust within the Native community Mm -hmm. and accepting help from non-natives because you know it's not just the Navajo all across the hundreds of tribes within the United States have been promised a lot of things whether it's treaties with the federal government or else you know other organizations coming and saying well, we're going to help you bring we're going to help bring you running water or we're going to take care of this uranium situation or we're going to help the reservation not be a food desert anymore and they're kind of broken promises and so a lot of it is just building trust mm-hmm. and I think people think a lot, well, you're from the Navajo Reservation, so you must know what it's like to work here or to do this. You know, what I said, I'm four hours away. My hometown's four hours away from where we're working. There's totally different cultures. And so it's definitely trust building. I've been with Dig Deep for about two years, and I'm finally starting to feel like I'm in a place where I'm very comfortable. Um, so, you know, just trust building and educating and getting yeah. people to be woke, as the kids say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yesterday I got to sit on, sit and watch the equity panel, yeah. uh, which was like fascinating. I think yeah. you were in there as yeah. well. Um, how does that tie, how does that whole equity thing tie into this? I mean, this is something that, I mean, with One Water, I think that's it's kind of generally overlooked the whole yeah. water equity side. Could you talk a little bit about that and how that ties into Dig Deep? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think again, working with populations that just aren't really on the map, you know, in terms of. I guess what people are thinking about, um, when I talk to people a lot, they, the immediate thing that they say, like people I don't know, like an Uber driver or somebody when they ask what I do, they say, oh, so you were in Flint, Michigan. And it's like, yeah, no, Flint is, obviously the situation there is horrible, but there are also hundreds of other places like that in the United States. And so a lot of that comes with this hierarchy of, well, who deserves help quicker and who deserves help more? Everyone deserves help and everyone deserves to have clean running water in their homes. And I think in terms of equity, it's just educating people that there are communities outside of Flint or there are communities, you know, like Standing Rock or there are actual positive movements that are going on. And I think it is something that is really hard when, again, like I said, you're not even seen as a visible human being, as a native person. And, you know, we're equal to everybody else. And with that said, we do deserve running water. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that's been going on the Navajo Nation a lot, which I've been working with in my own personal activism, is uh, the coal mining, the uranium mining, the closure of um, a 
coal plant on the Navajo Nation, which gives us a ton of revenue. It provides so many jobs. And so it's really complicated because obviously it's not good for the water. Obviously it's not good for the environment. It's not good for people's health. Um, and it, this was brought up yesterday in the panel about, I believe it was Buffalo, about how they used to use grain and how the water was mm -hmm. contaminated because of that. And I think it's sort of like learning from those situations where people have come up with these solutions, like how do we clean this water, how do we get around this after there's been industrial waste put into it. And I think for me, one thing about equity is it's like, well, how do we use that model in other areas as well? Because after they shut down the mine, the water's already, excuse me, the plant in Arizona and Utah. How do we use those things that other people have learned in terms of like unequal situations and how do we solve that problem? Because, okay, there's not gonna be job, there's not gonna be money, but the water's super messed up now. Yeah. So, you know, working with native populations is definitely difficult because we're totally the minorities of the minority and, mm -hmm. you know, there's totally inequality there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate yeah. you taking the time yeah. and this is really enlightening and, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Bob. <laughs>So that's a little bit from Emma Robbins on the Navajo community, um, kind of her involvement with that project and everything. Um, it, she, she was very, very interesting to talk to. And it, it, it again, this topic was so prevalent at that show that it, it really opened my eyes and made me yeah. much more like thoughtful mm -hmm. about it. Well, it, one of those things that if you have water readily available, it's not until something like your pipes freeze where you yes. realize that how badly you need it and that there are many people who don't have that availability. And water isn't an elitist uh, privilege. It's, it, is, it is for everyone. Everyone needs it. It needs to be affordable for everyone, available to everyone. Um, and this is an important topic that we have to discuss. And well, and I know it's only October, but the April 2019 issue of WQP <laughs> oh, will have an article about the uh, Navajo Nation Community Pl Plumbing Challenge written by um, someone from IATMO, the International Association of Plumbing and Mechanical Officials, for those of you who don't know. Um, because, you know, a lot of that was had to do with well digging and whatnot, and IATMO was involved with that. Yeah. And to touch on a couple more things, like I had so many things that I took away from that One Water Summit. Um, one of them, uh, a member of a uh, of one of those community, a community I believe in Texas, asked like, how can we as a water utility fight the fatigue of trying of handling this situation, handling water equity, and handling the the issues that come along with that? And the response was that's what it takes. I mean, you, you will be fatigued. It's a mm -hmm. very difficult thing to overcome. It's going to take a lot of energy and effort to overcome. The topic will not go away. So the sooner you actually address it, the better off you'll be. Um, and in addressing it, the other thing was take, take those things into consideration and show Take, like, take the comments into consideration from the people in the, within that community and show how you're incorporating them. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the biggest concern that I, that I heard, uh, heard there was basically taking those comments and just like 
check making it like a check mark in a box it's like oh yeah we have diversity we we listen to our constituents mm-hmm. and just checking a box and not doing anything with the information mm-hmm. do something with the information actually show how show your work um th- those are two really critical things that i think are are important to note when it comes to water equity um well and a lot of this you know we see a lot of this with the issue in flint michigan yeah. too because you know that was that's was and still is a yep terrible lead Mm -hmm. contamination situation but it also happened in a low-income community where they don't have the resources to fix it or provide bottled water for everyone all the time so they need to rely on these other resources and the government and you know other people to come in and help them but that's clearly been a struggle for a while and I've been to some events with people from Flint and, you know, moms from Flint or doctors, things like that. And everyone just seems frustrated because it's like they can't do it themselves and they need help. Mm -hmm. Now Elon Musk is helping, I guess. But, (laughs) um, you know, it's this is a big water infrastructure project that all these service line replacements, like it's not like someone can just go in and knock it out overnight. It's a big deal and they just don't have the resources for it. And now there's been reports of Legionnaires disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring that up because right now I just got an email this week from the EPA that this is National Lead Poisoning Prevention Week. It is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's clearly still problems well, in Flint, and that's still an issue. Let's think back. When did when did this Flint issue first arise? How many years ago was that? It was before I even started here, I think. It was... Four years? Is yeah, twenty. Is it twenty fourteen? Twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen? So one of those years. What you know? It, mm-hmm. It's been I mean, a long time, been. and not a lot of action has been taken. Mm-hmm. Which just goes right towards your point of do something with this information yeah. because it's mm-hmm. affecting people every single day. Yeah, it's easy to. Um, see the answers and not act on the answers for. Right. Uh, for other outside reasons yep. when in reality you should just act on them and deal with the consequences of making sure that the money goes to the right place after. Do we want to preview our next issues? Yeah. Real quick? Let's sure. Um, I guess I'll start. Uh, for November, interestingly enough, I do have an, a column from Esri on water equity. Nice. So, uh, <laughs> well, what I ta- well, well. so what I talked about earlier um, is kind of out- outlined, but a little bit differently by Esri in the November issue. Um, I also wrote an article this month for about seismic pipe standards and how there basically are none um, in the building and roads or building roads and bridges industries. Uh, there are seismic standards and guidelines for building roads, building bi- bridges, building buildings to seismic standards in areas where seismic activity is regular. That doesn't exist for pipes from what I gather. Um, I talked to a bunch of associations. A lot of them said that there is nothing. They believe that their pipes still withstand a lot of that stuff now, but there are several reports out there that you can find that show that that's not necessarily the case. Um, And as such, the American Society of Civil Engineers is actually um, working on a manual for purpose and invited those associations to come and talk about how can we make design standards for this. So 
Um, I didn't get really into the standards part of it because it doesn't really exist. I think it's a void that needs to be solved. Um, and it sounds like next year in 2019, the manual for purpose will be complete. Um, so I'll report back on that at that time. But th those are the key things for my issue. Nice. Um, so for WQP, our cover story this month um, was actually pitched to me by Kelly Thompson of Motive Vitality. Um, he has taken up a new hobby as a backpacker. Um, and so as a water treatment professional who is also backpacking, um, he decided to test out some of the filters available um, for hikers and people out in the woods, I guess, on, in search of clean water. So he um, tested some gravity filters, some pump filters, and some filter straws. So you can check that out to see his thoughts on that. And he also um, kind of closes out his article by encouraging dealers to consider some of these um, less conventional treatment methods or treatment products as service offerings that they can have at their dealership. So it's pretty interesting. Um, also, we have a our business, well, yeah, our business column, sorry, is um, from plumbing manufacturers in an international, um, and they wrote about um, EPA's WaterSense program uh, receiving bipartisan support. And actually, uh, we uploaded this issue, I believe, on October 10th, and... 10th or 11th, and on October 10th, um, the Senate passed a bill, the America's Water Infrastructure Act of 2018, which included a provision about water sense in it. So um, it's a pretty timely article and uh, pretty topical. Nice. Um, what else did we have? Um, our Q&A was pretty interesting. It's actually something we learned about, I believe, at ACE. Um, about an uh, at UC Berkeley, a group of researchers uh, created an engineered sand that's able to filter stormwater runoff, which can in turn be used as a drinking water source in water scarce areas. So nice. that's our November issue. Um, I don't have a November issue <laughs> um, in stormwater. We have a November December issue, so I'll fill you guys in on that the next episode. Um, but we are working on the final touches for the SWS conference and exhibition. Um, that is coming up this November, November 13th to 15th. Um, and we're really getting close. We're only, you know, a few weeks away. And um, I do have a special discount going on right now. If you're um, still not registered, we're offering full registration. That's both, uh, both days. Um, uh, for the exhibits and um, speakers for only $99. So when you register, just use code SWS99, um, and we hope to see you there. Cool. Right. Awesome. Well, I guess our <laughs> final bit of housekeeping, we are on iTunes and Google Play. Rate, subscribe, do all that fun stuff. Um, if you want to get involved with us or give us some feedback, you can email us at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com. You can also um, visit all of our websites and send us emails through that. Or you can check out our Twitter and Facebook pages, Water and Waste Digest, Water Quality Products, and Stormwater Solutions. Yeah. Uh, just search for us on Google. You can find us. If you, We'd love to hear your reviews. 
That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, we'd like we'd like to get some reviews. That'd be really cool, and we'll also make this podcast more visible to other people as well. So, yeah, um, yeah definitely. Cool. Pass pass along some information and let us know about your water use too. We did talk about that earlier in the episode, um, but email us at Talking Underwater. Let T- us know. Use the water footprint calculator and let us know if yeah. you beat Can you Lauren. Beat me? <laughs> <laughs> Challenge accepted. All right. Well, until See you next, next time. Month. Thanks. See ya.